This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the Pentagon released its latest four-year national defense strategy a few weeks ago, it became must-reading for anyone connected with the U.S. military. For one thing, it gave clues to the types of leadership the military will need. For more, we turn to retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Mark Faulkner, now president of the Institute of Defense and Business. General Faulkner, good to have you with us. Tom, thanks. It's good being with you. And your organization focuses on leadership development. So is there some line you can draw for us between the latest strategy, the latest four-year strategy, and leadership needs that you think might be required in the military complex? Yeah, Tom, absolutely. You know, as I read through the the defense strategy, it clearly lays out the challenges that our nation is going to face over the next 10 years. And it does a good job of not sugarcoating the seriousness of the threats and the challenges, you know, whether it's the peer competitor of China, whether it's what Russia and their aggressions doing, Iran, North Korea, I mean, a whole host of challenges. And Secretary Austin really has stated that, look, we're not going to be able to do this with business as usual. And what that means, uh, and that's where it, it comes close to home for us at IDB, what that means is that, you know, our leaders can't do business as usual. They need to be more prepared to take on these challenges. And that's where we come in, actually preparing these leaders, shaping these leaders so they can solve these critical problems that our nation is going to be faced with. So we're continuing to design and deliver these custom education solutions at IDB, and it's even going to be more important going forward in the future. Yes, let's maybe back up for a moment. Tell us a little bit more about IDB's mission and how it works functionally. Where does the education get delivered and who comes to receive it? At the end of the day, of course, we're a nonprofit. We're located in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We're about 25 years old as an organization, and we were born right here in North Carolina. We have a relationship with UNC Chapel Hill for some of our programs. But really, over the last 20, 25 years, over 10,000 leaders from defense, from government, from private industry have come through our programs. We're right about 85% DOD mid to senior level leaders, majors, lieutenant colonels, all the way up to generals and admirals, GS6s, 7s, government civilians, all the way up to senior executive service individuals, and from private industry, vice presidents of some of the top-name defense contractors, Northrop Grumman, uh, Boeing, and others. But they come together across 10 to 12 of our program offerings and a lot of logistics underpinning but they focus on critical problem solving and they walk away from our programs equipped with tools to make them better equipped to do that. The last thing I'd say to you is that it's really unique in bringing government together with private industry where private industry is able to share the best business practices, which is something that Secretary Austin is very interested in doing, is making sure that whether it's defense or industry, we share these perspectives. And let me ask you this. I mean, a lot of requirements have been laid on military leaders in recent years, probably more than when you were serving. They have to be concerned with diversity, equity, all of these questions. They also have to worry about climate types of effects on operations and on establishments, military bases, posts, and so on. I mean, even the systems are changing. I saw one at the Army show, this new proposed tank, it's just a prototype, has batteries. You know, it's like the world's most badass Prius that was ever built, not bought yet. But these are the kinds of things that have to concern military leaders as much as, as they used to say, breaking things, killing people, winning the nation's wars and so forth. So how does that translate into leadership requirements? 
Yeah, it's a great point. This issue of change and culture is very important. But I'll tell you what I would add on to that. And something that, again, is in the national defense strategy is this issue of integrated deterrence. And so today and tomorrow's problems are more complex than they ever has been, not only because of the competitors that I named earlier, but the collapsing of domains where diplomatic and economic and military comes together. The challenges associated with cyber, with technology, with autonomous vehicles, with information. So my point is that this is different than it was even a decade ago when I was still wearing the uniform, which frankly is going to require our leaders to be smarter, whether it's military or civilian, and solve more difficult problems. So not only some of the ones you named, but I would argue the others that really cover tactical, operational, all the way to strategic Those leaders need to be able to do that, and they need to be able to do it quickly because time is going to matter on tomorrow's battlefield. We're speaking with Mark Faulkner. He's president of the Institute of Defense and Business and a retired Marine Corps lieutenant general. And is there any way that this can translate, I don't know, downstream or upstream, I'm not sure what the right word is, but the recruitment challenge that the military services face is pretty substantial and worrisome because you can't field the end strength that even Congress requires if you don't have the raw material coming in. And part of it is the state of the nation's raw material. You could go on and on about that one. But can any of this idea of the new way of thinking, this creativity that leaders need, somehow be used to show, hey, this is a place you might want to be for your career, or at least part of your career? Well, I think it really does. And, you know, the young men and women of our nation, they need to be incentivized. And they need to know that they're not only joining our military to support our great nation, but it needs to be interesting. And there needs to be something there for them. And we need to work hard to do a better job. And I can talk about that as well. You you know, you might be surprised that I have some opinions on how well we're doing with developing our people. But look, they need to know that there's something for them, whether it is innovation, whether it is the importance of data, whether it is something that they could take from the military out to the private industry. So, you know, the days of just saying kind of, you know, shut up and color, uh, put on the uniform, look, that's not going to get it anymore. We need to be more thoughtful in the way we incentivize and we offer opportunities to young men and women of the importance of the military. Now, your own organization, the Institute of Defense and Business, has established some partnerships with other national groups to try to do what exactly? Yeah, you know, we, we have, and uh, it's interesting as uh, not necessarily a, a perhaps a good parallel, but as the defense strategy talks about allies and relationships, you know, we see that the same way at IDB. We need allies and relationships to be even stronger. So we're doing that with, for example, the Defensive Alliance of North Carolina that is wrapping their arms around all these terrific defense industries across this great state. We're doing it with the National Defense and National Transportation Associations. We're doing it with Defense Acquisition University. And frankly, we're doing it with the Office of the Secretary of Defense. You know, we have one with the University of North Carolina now. But frankly, we feel that we could be stronger together with other organizations to get the word out and uh, do better in terms of marketing and uh, just getting more leaders into our programs. There have been lots of published stories, lots of analyses lately about whether the United States military edge is eroded to a dangerous level, whether the readiness is there, whether the platforms we have are adequate for what might be ahead. And 
yet the second tier, if you will, of leadership in the military services is largely unseen and unknown to the public. Everybody knows who Lloyd Austin is and so forth, and we know the chief of staff of the Army. Those are people that are out there. What's your sense of the readiness of those people operating below the publicity lines but are really the next generation of the top people? Are they up to what's ahead? Well, if the uh, individuals coming through our programs are any indication, Tom, I would say simply yes. I'm very encouraged. I'm very encouraged whether it's the young lieutenants, the captains, even, you know, the master sergeants, sergeants major that come through our courses. They have a lot of drive. They have a lot of energy. They're smart as hell. And their work ethic is just tremendous. But I got to tell you, we can do better. And uh, we can do better as a nation. And you look at Secretary Austin's priorities. He, he was pretty clear that people is one of his top priorities. But where we're still falling short, and, you know, I got to look in the mirror, and I could have done a better job when I was on active duty. We're still falling short of investing in our people. You know, it's easy to invest in things, missiles, uh, nuclear deterrence, all the capabilities that are laid out. But when it comes to investing in our people, our talk is not matching our resources. And we got to do better. We must do better if we're going to deliver on what's laid out in the national defense strategy. And does that also extend to the civilian workforce, which is often overlooked as a really crucial part of all of this? I've come across some individuals on the civilian side in DOD just doing amazing leading-edge work in acquisition, in artificial intelligence, and ways of just speeding up everything. And they're not at all squeamish about doing this for the military purpose. You know, it does apply, but I will tell you that the defense industry, DOD in particular, is really doing well in that area compared to how they've done in the past. There are pockets of success, I will tell you. So let me give you a couple of examples. The Army, in terms of their civilian career force management, is tremendous. They just recently published an implementation plan that clearly lays out objectives and goals for the future. And they are actually resourcing and putting money against it. Uh, I mentioned the Honorable Chris Lohman, the uh, uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Sustainment. He is working hard to actually get it in their palm, as opposed to just kind of paying it out of the daily operational budget. One last one would be um, the DLA, the Defense Logistics Agency, and United States Transportation Command. Michelle Skubik and General Van Obos at Transcom are actually putting money against their civilian workforce in particular, Uh, More than ever, we've recognized how important those folks are. Frankly, they're the continuity. As folks like me in military uniform bounce around across the nation, they stay in position sometimes for 15, 20, 25 years. So it's important that they're educated and professionally developed as well. All right. So it sounds like you're optimistic. I really am. But it doesn't mean that we can't be better. And it doesn't mean that we don't have work to do if, in fact, We're going to deliver on these challenges that are laid out in the National Defense Strategy. Mark Faulkner is president of the Institute of Defense and Business and a retired Marine Corps lieutenant general. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for the opportunity. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First. Always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.